The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. But this morning we're going to start our sermon from James chapter 2. And last Sunday night we studied the entire context of James chapter 2. But as I was studying that, there's one verse there in verse 13 that I thought was pretty powerful. Um, and it's used in its context in, in a slightly different way, but there's an underlying principle there that I want to consider. In James 2 and verse 13, James says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now we know that that context is talking about the sin of partiality, where they were showing love to the rich man and not to the poor man, and therefore they weren't having mercy on the plight of the poor man. The poor man um, was going through a lot to be poor, obviously, is in and of itself a trial. And instead of seeing that man dressed in his rags and obviously in need, um, wanting in various categories, they didn't have mercy on that. They had no compassion on his um, inferior situation. And so that's what this is talking about, that you need to have mercy or else God won't have mercy on you. But notice, especially at the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. That should be true in our relationships, but it's especially true in God's relationship with us. I think each and every one of us can can re recall a time when we were wronged by someone, um, or or we wronged someone rather. We we said something to them, or we did something that that caused pain um, in their life. We we did something that wronged someone, and we felt horrible after that. We we felt guilty. Um, we, we felt bad about doing whatever we did to that person, but then on top of that guilt, there was a fear. I think we've all experienced this. Maybe it's a child before a parent or even a, a spouse before a spouse or just friends or whatever it may be. We feel guilty, but on top of that guilt, we have a fear and an anticipation of what the consequence will be. Are we going to lose that relationship with that person? Uh, is that person going to retaliate in some way? And depending on who it is, that may not be our thought, but but maybe it is. Maybe they'll retaliate. I, I fear the consequences. So on top of this struggle with my guilt, I'm afraid of what might happen to me or to our relationship because of such betrayal on my part. But then for all that to happen, that person turns around and surprises us by showing mercy. Not that they've just overlooked that you did wrong to them, but they have a heart of forgiveness. And in your penitence, they've shown mercy to you. In such a case, mercy has triumphed over judgment. They had every right to be able to do something to you. They're the consequence of the situation, whatever it may be, there was every right and circumstance for that to be carried out in fullness. And that's what we feared. But then mercy triumphed over judgment. Their mercy was greater than the judgment of the matter. And every child of God can especially be filled with gratitude for this particular component of our relationship with him. His mercy triumphs over his judgment. He has every right to retaliate in judgment 
and send us to eternal destruction. But this is what God said. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And so his mercy triumphs over his judgment. And we should constantly reflect on that. We should constantly be thanking God for that and meditating upon that wonderful truth of God's word and his relationship to us. But also, if we are meditating on it, we are thinking about it constantly, and we are grateful for it as we should be, that's going to drastically affect the way that we live as Christians in our relationships one to another and to those who are in the world. If we truly appreciate the mercy of God that triumphs over his judgment, then we are going to be able to do the opposite of what we saw in James 2. Instead of showing partiality, we'll love not just the rich man who comes into our assembly, but also the poor man. We're not going to, to view each other in that regard, but any kind of thing that might bring about a, a judgment from us, an initial thought, or or maybe when someone has wronged us, if we truly appreciate and comprehend the fact that God's mercy triumphed over judgment in our relationship with him, then we'll be more inclined to deal with that person in the same manner and have mercy and let that mercy triumph over any judgment. So consider this very fundamental and important principle of Holy Scripture, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Consider firstly that with God and his relationship with us and our relationship with him, there is a divine dilemma. And what I'm meaning by that is not that God is at a crossroads and he doesn't know what to do, but it's really our perspective looking up to him. There's a divine dilemma because we know that God is a certain way and that that's in conflict with our sin. God is a just God. And that is exactly what he's promised, to be just and that justice to be manifested in judgment. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, Solomon said that God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's not suggesting that's a possibility. He's saying this is going to happen. And that's, that's really a problem for us when we think about it. He's going to judge and he's going to be just in his judgment. He's going to see and judge every good thing or evil thing. And that judgment is going to be fair. It's going to be just. And, and this is what David understood in Psalm 51 with regard to his sin with Bathsheba and then obviously covering that up with, with the murder of Uriah the Hittite. In Psalm 51 and verse 4, David understood this aspect of God that his judgment is is going to happen. It's true and, and it it's it's not just something that maybe happens, but it is absolutely promised. But not only that, that it's just. He'll always be right in his judgment. He'll never judge from malevolent motives. He'll never judge with jealousy. He'll never judge with vengeance just for the sake of vengeance. He's going to judge according to his justice, his just nature. And so David understood that. That's why he said in Psalm 51 and verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is quoted in Romans chapter 3 about the Jews and their sin 
and the fact that even though their sin was called out, that they replied against God and called him as the unfaithful one. They tried to put the blame on God, but what the psalmist quotes, or, or, or Romans, um, Paul quotes Psalm 51, so that they can understand the attitude they should have with their sin is the attitude David had. He owned up to his sin, and he owned up to his sin that God may be found just, and God may be found blameless. God doesn't make mistakes. If God has said we've sinned, that is absolutely true. He's just in his judgment, and his judgment, therefore, is going to be certain. He's not going to say he's going to judge and then see our sin and then kind of maneuver around that and, and do something different than what he's told us we're going to do. Some people view God in that way, that I know God's word says this, but I can't comprehend that that God would judge in that strict a fashion. But his judgment is certain. He's already given us, as Jesus said in John twelve forty eight, the standard of judgment. My word, Jesus said, will judge you in that last day. His judgment is certain. The standard is set. There's no way around it. In Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, the prophet Habakkuk appealed to this very true part of God's nature about his justice and his judgment that it's certain, especially when he looks on wickedness. In Habakkuk 1.13, he says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. In other words, when there's wickedness, when there's evil, God, your nature doesn't allow it to just go without any consequence, to go unnoticed or to go without being dealt with. And the specific context of that is there's evil in Israel, in Judah, and here is Habakkuk calling on God to, to do justly with those evildoers and with the people who are innocent and being um, treated poorly by the evil in Judah, being oppressed. And what God decides to do is use the evil nation of Babylon to carry out that judgment on his people who are evil. And what Habakkuk is doing is showing that he doesn't understand how God can take a people more evil than those who are just in Judah and use them to punish them, to, to discipline them. And that's why he says, you are of pure eyes than of old evil and cannot Look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? And so while he's appealing to the true nature of God because he doesn't understand what God's doing, that nevertheless stands that God's judgment is certain. He cannot look on evil or wickedness and do nothing. In Psalm 11, David appealed to this when in a psalm really of orientation, while the foundations are destroyed, God is still in his holy temple and his eyelids his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Psalm 11 and verse 5 now. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. So God's seeing everything, and he's testing both the righteous and the wicked. And with the wicked, they'll be utterly punished. It'll be terrible. And with the righteous, they'll be upheld by God. He loves the righteous and he his countenance beholds the upright. That's certain. There's the right hand and the left hand. There's the sheep and there's the goats. And there's evil and then there's, there's righteousness. There's light and there's darkness. And that's God's judgment. And it's certain. If you find yourself on one side in the judgment, you're not going to be able to jump over to the other side. And God's not going to place you there. 
And so there's a dilemma because in Romans chapter 9, in verses or 3 in verses 9 through 10, we see that all are confined under sin. We have previously charged, Paul says, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a dilemma to me. There's a problem here. There's a, a sticky situation we find ourselves in where God is just and he has to judge thusly and we find ourselves in sin. But here's another part of the dilemma. While God is just and therefore must carry out his punishment on those who are in sin, he doesn't want to. And that actually is a good thing for us. But there's the dilemma. How can God be just, but then not destroy those who are unrighteous and sinners? Well, he certainly doesn't want to. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 23, Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 18, 23, Do I have any pleasure, the Lord says, at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Likewise, in verse 32, God says, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. God is saying this is going to happen if you persist, but I don't want it to happen. But if he's going to be just and we've already sinned, how does that work? There's a dilemma. Likewise, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, it says that God desires all men to be saved. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, that he's not willing that any should perish. Now, there's a solution to this. God is just, and he must uh, deal justly there with sin and sinners, and that means punishment. But he also doesn't want to punish. He doesn't want any to perish. But there's a solution to this, and really, this concept in Ezekiel and in 1 Timothy 2 and then in 2 Timothy 3, that he doesn't want anyone to perish, that's really the solution. And that's what mercy is. God is full of mercy, and that's the divine solution. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's in his provision and also in his nature. That he's abundant in mercy. Psalm 86 and verse 5 says, You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does throughout Scripture. He makes sure that we know the capacity. Even though it blows our minds, we can't really comprehend it. He makes sure... We know the capacity of God's goodness, of his mercy, of his grace. There's no shortage of it. It's stored up in heaven and it's ready for us and for any and all who need it. He's abundant in mercy. Is he just? Yes. Does sin deserve death? Romans 6.23 says absolutely the wages of sin is death. We have earned death. But here's the wonderful thing. God is abundant in mercy. The New Testament bears this out as well. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3, God is called the Father of mercies. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We might remember in John chapter 8 that the devil is called the Father of lies because he told the first lie, lies therefore originated with him, and he's the best liar there is. And that's when you see this idea of a father of something. That's that's what it's talking about. 
So Abraham's father, Abraham, he's a father of faith. It's because, you know, all those promises are seated in him in regard to his lineage and and the fact that his faith was accounted for righteousness and all of those things. So he's the father, Abraham, father of faith. If we walk in the steps of Abraham, we will be um, just before God as he was justified according to his faith. But God is called the father of mercies. It starts with him. When people are merciful to one another, that's a component of God. Where, where did you get that? Where does that moral concept come from? Well, it comes from God. He's the father of mercies. And likewise, in Ephesians 2 and verse 4, it says that God is rich in mercy. And so he's abundant. It originates with him. He is rich in mercy. His mercy is abundant. He has more than enough. In Psalm 103 and verse 17 the psalmist said that the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Again, the Holy Spirit's trying to show us just how merciful God is. How much mercy does he have? Does he have enough for me when he's given it to you? Does he have enough for people down the street when he's given it to us? He is abundant. He has more than enough. He has an endless supply. And so while he's just, he's also even more quick to forgive, quicker to forgive than to, to punish. He's merciful. He doesn't want us to be punished. We need to understand, though, what this is. I, I know we know what mercy is. Arden Gingrich says that mercy is to be greatly concerned about someone in need. God is greatly concerned about our need, our need for forgiveness, ultimately. Vine adds to that. It means to fill sympathy with the misery of another. And especially sympathy manifested in act. He goes on to say that the outward manifestation of pity is mercy. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it. That's us. We need something. We're in sin. We ultimately need atonement and forgiveness. And resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. And so it's not just that God feels sorry for us, but he can't do anything for us. His mercy is a divine solution because not only does he feel compassion for us and want us to be saved and doesn't want us to be lost, but he has the absolute necessary resources to actually bring that into effect. Thanks be to God that he does in the fact that his mercy does triumph over judgment. God looks on us with compassion and he knows what needs to be done, and he can do what needs to be done in order to give us what we need, and that always triumphs over judgment. James 2 and verse 13, again, mercy triumphs over judgment. That word triumphs means to exult against or to boast against. I believe some translations have that, to boast against. Mercy boasts against judgment. But it means to boast against because there is a cause for boasting. And Arton Gingrich says it's because of an advantage in power. So how powerful is God's judgment? I don't think we need to look very far into Scripture to see how powerful God's judgment is. We see it on display throughout the entire Old Testament. We see it on display in the New Testament. Just consider in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, and they dropped dead then and there, and it caused fear to come upon the whole church. That's God's justice. That's God's judgment, and it's powerful. But 
what James 2 and verse 13 is telling us is that as powerful as God's judgment is, his mercy has an advantage in power over his judgment. It triumphs over judgment. There's nothing judgment can do when God's mercy is set up against it. And that's wonderful. As much as we've sinned, as as bad as we've sinned, as we see some degrees of sin as through human eyes, it really pales in comparison to the abundance and power of God's mercy. And that's wonderful. Consider back in Psalm 51. David understood what his sin deserved. His sin deserved just punishment. And if God would have struck him dead at that time, if if God would have went ahead and sent him down to hell at that time, according to his standard and his judgment, that would have been just. That's what all sin deserves. One sin deserves that spiritual death and brings on that spiritual death. But David, knowing this, also knew the triumphant power of God's mercy. And that's what he appealed to in Psalm 51. In verse 1, he said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So as great as David's sin was, and as deserving of a punishment as it was, David knew that God is a merciful God. He doesn't want that to happen to me. And so he appealed to his mercy. He appealed to his loving kindness. He appealed to the abundance of his tender mercies. The fact is that God's mercy is more powerful than his judgment. I think we see that as we previously studied recently in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. And we know the connection with mercy and God's grace. They're not the exact same thing, but they're very intimately associated. Where in Romans 5 and verse 20, Paul gave this tone of God's mercy and love and his grace triumphing over judgment. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And if his mercy was not more powerful than his justice and judgment, then none of us would have hope. So this is obviously the divine solution. But we need to understand that mercy triumphing over judgment does not mean that God's mercy somehow negates or erases his judgment. That is not the biblical principle behind mercy triumphing over judgment. God having mercy on the sinner doesn't mean that he just overlooks the sin or he doesn't care about it. That's really what the world thinks. The world thinks that God is just in his judgment and that sin means we violated his law and all have sinned. And, and the world knows that we're worthy of death. The world will tell you that. Those in the denominations, they'll tell you that. Yeah, I don't deserve anything. I The only thing I deserve is eternal death. That is absolutely true. But then what they'll suggest is that God's mercy somehow is this universal umbrella that just kind of blindly covers everything that we do. That God's mercy means he's just going to forget about the sins completely and, and just that by itself. That there's, there's just a general concept of God's mercy that it negates his judgment. That's not what it means at all. Consider when we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
we noted in First Timothy chapter 2, in verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved, but he adds something. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This means that there is still a component of justice here. There's, there's conditions. God wants men to be saved. That's his mercy. But here is the fact that you've got to be in the truth. And if you're not in the truth, that's more judgment that God's going to have on us. And, and the person who isn't in the truth, therefore, will not be recipients of his mercy, won't be saved, but they'll be on the other side of things. Likewise, in Second Peter 3, we quoted verse 9, that he's not willing that anyone should perish. But he adds to that, but that all should come to repentance. And so God's mercy doesn't negate judgment, because if you don't do what God says to receive his mercy, namely come to the knowledge of the truth and repent of your sin, then you won't be a recipient of his mercy. Consider also Proverbs 16 and verse 6. Proverbs 16 and verse 6 shows also that mercy does not negate God's judgment. It doesn't just flush it down the toilet. It's it's still there. Mercy doesn't just overlook the guilt of sin completely. There's, there's more to it than that. In Proverbs 16 and verse 6, the proverb says, In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. In mercy and truth. Not just mercy alone. God doesn't just say, I don't want you to, to die. I don't want you to perish. And so you're not going to perish. In mercy and truth. So they go hand in hand. Where mercy is God's attitude toward those who are in need of atonement for sin. And mercy atonement is provided for iniquity. Truth is the place where that atonement is provided for and where it is accessed. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. So there's still things that we have to do. God doesn't just forgive right away. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. We also read from Psalm 103 and verse 17, where it says that the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. But he adds to that, and he shows the point we're trying to make. The mercy of the Lord is from ever everlasting to everlasting, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. So yes, his mercy is abundant. It's from everlasting to everlasting, but it's only on those who fear him. That, that means if you don't fear God, mercy has not negated your sin. God's mercy is still there and he still has mercy on you. He looks on you with compassion, but if you are not abiding according to his commandments, his covenant, in his truth, repenting of your sins, if, if you don't fear him, then his mercy does not avail you. And so it's not just something that randomly and arbitrarily erases everyone's sins. Notice Galatians 6 and verse 16. In Galatians 6 and verse 16, Paul writes that as many as walk according to this rule, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So who is peace and mercy upon? Peace and mercy are upon those who walk according to this rule. We'll look at what that rule is in a minute, but notice there's a rule. Peace and mercy be upon them who walk according to a rule and upon the Israel of God. 
And so it's not just that mercy is something that is applied by God to everyone immediately. Mercy is something that has to be accessed. And so where mercy doesn't negate the judgment of God, we understand mercy is specific. It's it's specific. It's it's in a certain area and under such conditions that God has placed, which means that even though God is merciful to all mankind in the sense of his attitude toward them, the product of the mercy, which is forgiveness of sins, is in a specific place and accessed with certain and specific conditions, which means if those are not met, then the mercy of God is not applied to the individual. See, the world takes a generic view of God's mercy. What they'll say is that all have sinned, but his mercy will keep us from the punishment we deserve. That is true, but they'll leave it open-ended. And so they'll not be specific about who's going to be the recipients of the product of God's mercy, those who will be benefited from God's mercy. They leave it open-ended so that really anything goes. That's what denominationalism is all about. You can speak the different things but they can all be saved likewise. And, and that's completely contrary to Scripture. God's law is specific, and His mercy is definitely specific. We see that in Romans chapter 9. In verse 15, in a context we'll study in more detail in Bible class eventually, Romans 9 and verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Likewise, in verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. In other words, there are specific people that God has decided to have mercy on, and then this other group that he decided to harden or not have mercy on. And what he's not doing is speaking of individual predestination. That's what the Calvinists will do with this chapter of Scripture. But what he is doing is saying that he's decided salvation will be within a certain group, namely those who have faith in Christ. That's the context. And it includes not just the Gentiles, but it also includes the Jews, which are the subject of Romans 9, 10, and 11, as those who are being rejected by God. In chapter 11, Paul will say, not all Israel are cast away, because he himself is an Israelite. He himself is a Jew. The difference is the place where God's mercy or his grace is offered and provided and accessed. In chapter 9, again in Romans, in verses 30 through 33, we won't read it, but it essentially states that the reason why some are not going to be saved and therefore they're hardened, and some are going to be saved, is because some are seeking salvation according to their own works of righteousness, while others are seeking salvation according to the faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. They seek it by faith. And that's what God intended. That's God's design. So if you don't go after God's plan, you're not going to receive the benefits from God. So go back to Romans chapter or Galatians chapter 6 and notice there that the mercy and peace is upon those who walk according to this rule. Now the rule is explained beforehand who walk according to this rule, he's pointing back to the previous verses. And in verses 12 through 14, he speaks about these Judaizing teachers who are boasting in the circumcision of the Galatians and boasting in the circumcision of those whom they've circumcised. And what they're doing is they're binding the entire law on that, even though they themselves are not keeping it. And they're saying that in order to be saved, you've got to do these works. But in verse 15, he says, 
in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. That's the rule of verse 16. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. What rule? Those who are a new creation. Where? In Christ Jesus. You are availed of nothing. Nothing benefits you by being circumcised or not being circumcised. What benefits you is buying it be by being in Christ Jesus and therefore being a new creation. Thus, God's mercy is specific. It's specific in regard to its location. It's specific in regard to being in Christ. Consider Isaiah 53 or 55 and verse 3, where Isaiah says, Incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, says the Lord. The sure mercies of David. Here's mercy. And it's specific. It's the sure mercies of, of David. Now we know that that's connected with Christ because Christ is of the lineage of David, of the tribe of Judah, and he is the Messiah. And the mercy of God would come through the Messiah. And that's what the Apostle Paul pointed out in Acts, 7, in Acts 13. When he was in Antioch and Pisidia at the synagogue on the Sabbath, he, after the reading of the law and the prophets, he began giving a, a brief recitation of the Israelite history that would be culminated in this person of the Christ. In verse 22 of Acts 13, it says that when God had removed him, speaking of Saul, the son of Kish, in verse 21, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, a Savior, Jesus. Remember, we're talking about the sure mercies of David. And from David came Jesus, Israel's Savior. In verse 32, it continues. We declare to you glad tidings, Paul says, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. What Paul is doing is connecting the mercy of God that Isaiah 55.3 describes as sure mercies, and that being from David, he's connecting it specifically with Christ. In Christ is the mercy of God. Consider in Galatians 6 and verse 16, that he says what avails a person is in Christ the new creation. In Christ Jesus, what avails a person is a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so being in Christ is where the mercy is found, and it's because in Christ a person is a new creation. And so who's going to be recipients of his mercy? Those who are in Christ. Galatians 3 talked about how we get into Christ. In verse 26, Paul said, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so when you're baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. That's that new creation in Christ Jesus. And that's where the sure mercies of David are found, in Christ. And so his mercy is specific. That's why, as we recently studied in Romans 8 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, all of that is connected again with his mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. There is that new creation to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Does God's mercy triumph over judgment? Absolutely. It's so much more powerful than God's judgment. But it is specific. It's in Christ. So where God has compassion on all, and that's why he sent his son, that all through him might be saved, only those who actually go through him and are found in him are saved. And so God's mercy is specific in location. It's found in Christ. But lastly, it's also specific in its manner of life. Notice there in Romans 8 and verse 1, as we just quoted, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And he adds, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And we recently studied that, that the person who is fleshly minded and is only wanting to please the lust of the flesh, the, the desires of the flesh, is not going to be able to submit to God's law because God's law is spiritual, but he's thinking fleshly. And so the no condemnation is for those in Christ Jesus, but those in Christ Jesus are those who are spiritually minded and therefore trying to serve God to the greatest ability that they have. And so not only is the location being in Christ, the specific area of God's mercy and the specific way God's mercy is accessed, but our manner of life is also part of the specifics of God's mercy. It's a condition of God's mercy. We've got to be in Christ, and really we've got to stay in Christ. Consider Jonah's words in Jonah 2 and verse 8, likely with his mind on the Ninevite nation who he was supposed to go speak repentance to. In Jonah 2 and verse 8, he said, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Mercy can be forsaken. It can be forsaken when our manner of life does not match what God requires, namely idolatry in Jonah 2 and verse 8. But even in James 2 and verse 13, when he says mercy triumphs over judgment, right before that he said judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And so when we don't show mercy to each other, and it reminds me of the parable of the unforgiving servant, he was forgiven, and then he turned around and threw his servant who owed a debt in prison instead of forgiving him. God's not going to show mercy to us if we're not showing mercy to each other, not just in that idea of forgiving of wrong, but even in that context of James 2, in having compassion on the person who is less fortunate and then doing something to aid them, or at the very least showing love to them and not being partial with your love. And so we can forsake our own mercy from God by showing no mercy to others. And then lastly, we can forsake our own mercy by unfaithfulness. Again, God's mercy is specific to being in Christ, and being in Christ is not simply being baptized into Christ, but it's continuing to be in Christ through abiding in him, in his word. First John 2 tells us a little bit about that. He says in verse 3, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And if we're in him, we're recipients of his mercy. But he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So we can't have this 
thought of mercy that means it's going to be applied no matter what. We've got to have this understanding of mercy that it's specific. We've got to be in Christ. And once we've gotten in Christ through baptism, we've got to abide in Christ by walking according to his commandments, by walking as he walked. And certainly we take comfort and confidence through this component of God's word and his character that his mercy triumphs over judgment. When we get to the judgment seat in the end, each and every one of us will still deserve eternal death. That'll never change. The fact that that sinning one time has completely erased any kind of boasting that we could have. There is nothing we can say that would get us into heaven based on what we've done or said. And no one in the judgment is going to be appealing to God's justice. Because if, if we're appealing to God's justice, then we're saying, God, I've sinned. So deal with me accordingly. But we don't want that. What we're doing in our life is appealing to his mercy. And the thing is, we take comfort in that knowing that if we are doing these things, we are in Christ and we are continually abiding in him by walking according to his commandments, that yes, indeed, even though we don't deserve heaven, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. We've sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but by his grace and mercy, we're forgiven of that sin. And we will be preserved as blameless and just in that day of judgment through God's power and through us meeting his conditions. So it's a wonderful thing that we're recipients of God's triumphant mercy. Now, obviously, today we cannot offer an invitation in the same way that we usually do. But we do want you to know that even though we're supposed to be social distancing um, to keep each other safe and, and to help this society um, continue to curb this uh, terrible virus and disease that your soul is more important um, than your body. And I myself will risk contracting coronavirus, COVID-19, if you need to be baptized. The building is open. We can go to the building. That's under 10 people. And we can baptize you for the remission of your sins. And we can do it now. We can do it today. We can meet there. And so if you need to be baptized, don't forsake God's mercy by not getting into Christ. But it's there, it's waiting for you. And obviously, if there's anyone who who needs prayers and, and discussion, call each other, talk to each other, um, ask for those prayers, and, and ask for any aid that you do indeed need. We're here for each other still, just in a slightly different way. Um, I hope that this sermon was beneficial to you, um, was edifying.